0: Tomorrow will be the one-year anniversary of my first day at work uh, here at West. Thanks. When people ask me how it has been, I often say I'm really glad to be going into my second year. And I mean it in all the senses. I am glad to be starting another year with all of you Glad to be serving as your senior leader. Glad this is where I landed. And I am glad that it can only be my first year once. (laughs) It's wonderful to know that as we head into the new year together, I've experienced your traditions at least once. In fact, they've become my traditions, too. I know what stone soup tastes like. I've seen the children light their candles at Winter Festival. I can't wait for next year's auction. All of those things were new to me last year, and it's a joy knowing that they will come around again, and that this time they will be like old friends, greeting me and helping me to mark the passing of the year. So with tomorrow as my one-year anniversary, today really marks the last new thing for me at West. Today is not anything particularly special, of course, just another Summer Sunday, but it's the last Summer Sunday that I haven't yet experienced here. And perhaps it is in that spirit that I am bringing you a new tradition for us to all try on for size and see how we like it. As I hope many of you know, I love to hear from members of the West community with questions, ideas, thoughts. I sometimes invite you through newsletter columns or at the end of a platform to come talk with me about something in particular, your vision for social justice at West, the history of West that you think I need to know. I love, to our community sharing time on Sunday morning when I get to hear what resonated for you in the morning's platform address. And at least once this year, I've actually asked for your feedback on a platform before I delivered it, hoping that your ideas and your reading lists for me, your references, would enrich my own process in creating the address. Today, I'm taking that idea to either an extreme or its own logical conclusion. Whether it works out or not, you can tell me at the end, with a platform address made entirely of questions. Over the last few weeks, I've received those questions from you, and this morning, I'll do my best to answer them, or at least respond with some thoughts of my own. Like all good philosophers and theologians, some of you have posed questions that are, in the end, unanswerable. And like any good clergy, I'll try to answer them anyway. (laughs) First, though, we have some nice, concrete questions to address. One longtime member talked about how much she... I'm, I'm struggling with this, aren't I, Kristen? I'm working on it. There were no questions about the technical <laughs> aspect of my leadership here, although maybe. <clears throat> One longtime member talked about how much she enjoyed and valued learning about relationships and communication skills when she first joined. And she wondered, is there a plan for bringing those skills to new members as they come and join our community? I loved this question because it actually gets at something that I think is really special and particular about ethical culture. Our focus on the practical, the real, the lived aspect of religion. We want to build and deepen our relationships here. And so part of what we have always offered in this congregation are classes and workshops, tools that help us increase our communication skills, our ability to talk with each other, our ability to listen, our ability, in the end, to be in authentic relationship. Over the years, we've offered different ways to hone those skills, and so this year, Mary Herman, of course, will be creating some specific skill-building workshops, as well as small groups like Deepening Circles, where we talk about issues of importance and learn how to listen to each other in a focused way. Mary is also working with lay leadership to bring back colloquy this coming year, a more intimate Sunday morning gathering that will precede platform and offer an opportunity to reflect together on themes. So I think that's an exciting way to share some of those skills as we learn to be with each other. And finally, I want to talk a little bit about the idea of covenant building and covenant creation work The idea of creating agreements about how we want to be together. Some of you might know that the board has done some of this work in the past year. In fact, their covenant was published in the summer newsletter. Many congregations, including actually the Brooklyn Ethical Society, have written covenants that apply to the whole membership, that are crafted using a process of intense engagement, deep conversation, visioning work about how we want to be with each other. I think that idea of creating a covenant, how we want to be in our relationships with each other, is something for us to think about down the road. But in the end, all of those tools, all of the workshops and skill building, the small groups, they all boil down to the same thing. Felix Adler called our ethical societies living laboratories, the place where we practice how we want to be with each other. And so in whatever way we do it, our work together on committees, on the board, greeting each other on Sunday morning, teaching together in Sunday school, all of those are ways that together we practice the kind of relationships that we want to have and that we want to build together. The next question is one that I get frequently. Mary and I both hear this often, especially from newcomers coming in. And the question is, what effects have Mary or I seen as a result of our dual affiliation with the Unitarian Universalist Association and, of course, our continued affiliation with the American Ethical Union as compared with how things were before? It's a tricky question for me to answer since I don't know how things were before. The vote for dual affiliation preceded me joining this community by about six months. But I've talked with people, I've heard some of the history, and of course Mary and I are in conversation. I think one thing that I often return to when talking about dual affiliation, and some of you have heard this, so I encourage you to look out the window and enjoy the birds (laughs) and the leaves on the trees. One thing that I often return to is the idea of congregational polity, the way the organization of the Unitarian Universalist Association works. Congregational polity is the, the sort of organizing principle behind Unitarian Universalist congregations. And what it means ultimately is that the highest authority rests with the individual congregation. So that means that the, this has actually now just fallen off that the Unitarian Universalist Association can't tell any of its affiliated congregations and certainly can't tell Wes what to do or how to be on Sunday morning. In fact, I think sometimes the Unitarian Universalist Association may wish that it could tell its congregations or direct them just a little bit more, but in reality, it's the congregation itself that holds all that decision-making power. And so there hasn't been and can't be any kind of directive that comes kind of down from the Unitarian Universalist Association to West. And, and so my sense is that Sunday mornings feel pretty similar to how they felt before affiliation. In fact, I think one of the things that Mary and I, and I know many who worked on the affiliation question are especially excited about, is the possibility of movement upward, of bringing ethical culture values and principles into the Unitarian Universalist Association, which is sort of the way the association is organized, that congregations bring things upward instead of things coming downward. I think the other thing that's important, certainly we have been excited to build new relationships and new connections within the Unitarian Universalist Association. But the whole process of thinking about affiliation and coming to the decision of dual affiliation has, I think, also deepened and strengthened our relationships within the American Ethical Union. I think that idea of thinking about who we are, who we are connected to, has allowed us to really strengthen our ties with other leaders, with other societies, and with the American Ethical Union in general. We were so excited at the American Ethical Union Assembly this year to bring, actually, we had 12 people from West at the Assembly, which meant that we were about 10% of the people gathered there that day. And that was exciting, and I think speaks to the deepening and the building of relationships both within the, the new Unitarian Universalist Association relationship, and also the historic and continued relationship within the American Ethical Union and the ethical culture movement as a whole. So that's where I see that question. The next two questions are about how we act in the world. And the first one asks whether there isn't acknowledged, she acknowledged first all that earth ethics and Wes has done to try to encourage both individual members and the whole society to think about our green practices. But she asks, she wonders if there isn't much more we can do to support each other and to change our ways and use less energy at West and our homes and offices, and asks what I think we could do as a community or as individuals to be kinder to the environment. I have been impressed recently with some of the information that I have read about vegetarianism and the impact that it has on the environment. There's a statistic that I imagine you've heard running around about going vegetarian being even better than buying a Prius. And since buying a Prius is kind of the height of environmental uh, impact, at least in popular culture, It caught my attention. I think the other reason why I think talking about eating less meat is interesting to me is that it's something that can be done gradually or little by little. It's not an all or nothing, you know, have a Prius or a Hummer. There's an in-between as well, or I should say probably a bicycle or a Hummer, actually. There's an in-between that we can try to consume less meat in our diets. There's a movement, I know, for Meatless Mondays, which I have some cousins who download recipes from the Meatless Mondays organization. So that's, that's my personal response. That's what I've been trying to do, eat a little bit less meat, choose vegetarian meals a little bit more frequently. And I wonder if, as individuals, that's not something that we could commit to on a weekly basis. I was talking yesterday with Sean Taff-Morales, who grew up here at the Ethical Society and who works with our teen group, and he was talking about the importance of what he called, and it was a new word to me, lifestyle, oh, sorry, I think my ear has changed shape in the weeks I've been away, what he called lifestyle activism. So the movement, particularly among young adults, to choose different ways of living to live out their values rather than joining marches and movements, donating to causes, actually changing their own lives. And I think that the green movement has really resonated with that idea of lifestyle activism. Sean has spoken here about his own veganism and about the idea of ethical eating. I am not a vegan and I think I can say fairly I probably never will be, but I can make some choices that impact the environment. I think the next question was a really interesting one to me because it's one that I struggle with. It was, what is a good way to respond when a street person or a panhandler asks for money? I actually spent two weeks as part of my seminary experience doing an immersion in homeless culture in Northern Virginia working with a variety of homeless shelters, different organizations that address homelessness, and also with a church, a Methodist church in Northern Virginia that is made up of mostly folks from the homeless and formerly homeless community. And I have to tell you that I really hoped by the end of those two weeks, immersing myself in this culture, spending all day thinking about homelessness and homeless advocacy issues, that I would know the answer to this question. And I don't. I asked it, actually, a number of times throughout that two-week experience of different people working with homeless populations, and I got different answers. I heard from people who said that they felt that their, what their personal interaction called them to do was to give money to folks who asked for it, to not worry about how they would spend it, that that was where they felt called to respond. I heard from people who led homelessness organizations that said, you know, it's not a good solution. The best thing is to direct them to advocacy and support organizations. I heard from people who had something in the middle, who suggested a system that I actually used in college that was available in the city where I went to college, where you could purchase uh, coupons that worked at stores to buy everything except alcohol and tobacco. And then folks who would respond and say, but who are we to dictate what people can spend money on? There are difficult answers to these questions. I think some of the favorite answers I've received are inviting people to come and have a meal with you. If they're standing frequently outside of restaurants or sandwich shops, coffee shops, Sometimes I'll ask them if there's something I can bring back from the sandwich shop for them, which usually then gets into kind of a lengthy conversation about choice of pastry. At one point I tried that and they didn't have the pastry, I had to come back out. It was long, but it led to a human connection, to a conversation. And to me, that's the most important part of this answer, that whatever you choose to do, You acknowledge that it's a human being who's asked you the question, who's made a request. Sometimes I don't have time or don't have desire to go in. I'm not near a sandwich shop. And so my answer is no. But I always make sure to look, to say no, to have a connection, to acknowledge that there's a request made, that I'm not going to fulfill that request at this time, but that I see that here is another human being talking to me. So for me, that's the absolute most important piece anytime we're approached on the street, even with a flyer for the all-night girls club that we're not interested in, to acknowledge that it's a human being passing out that flyer. So that's where I come down, and I hope that someday I may have a clearer answer to that question. I do think that some of the answer has to do with advocacy and support organizations and how we can address the issue of homelessness on a more holistic level. Which conveniently leads right into the next question I had. This question was asking me to preview a platform happening at the end of October and a workshop that will follow it. And you'll get to read about that workshop in the program guide, but I do wanna let you know a little bit about it now. There's a small group of people at West that have started talking with All Souls, the Unitarian Universalist congregation down 16th Street, and the Washington Interfaith Network about a supportive housing project that they're thinking about in our ward here in Ward 4. A, a project that would create housing for formerly homeless folks and using the Housing First model, which um, is based on the idea that it's unreasonable to ask people living on the street or living in difficult housing situations to get their lives together first before they're granted permanent housing, and that instead we need to get people into permanent housing situations and then build support around them to help them bring their lives back together. So based on that model, the supportive housing... Um, Scenario is often housing, so units for formerly homeless, and then support organizations maybe on the first floor of the building. So there's some interest and excitement about the possibility of creating that kind of housing here in Ward 4, and there's a team that's starting to work on it. And so the, the person asking this question knows that and wanted me to tell you a little bit about it to let you know that at the end of October, the social justice minister from All Souls will come do the platform service, sort of speaking more broadly about social justice issues. And then that will be followed by a workshop that she will co-lead along with one of the organizers from the Washington Interfaith Network. And uh, and together they'll talk about this particular supportive housing um, program and invite the whole society, the whole congregation, to learn more about it and to get involved. So if you have more questions about that, I'd love to talk with you about them. I loved getting some of those concrete questions, the ones that asked about specific parts of our community life together. But I also received some questions that I would describe as theological or philosophical. And of course, of course, those were exciting and interesting to me as well. Here is one of them. Is there an evolutionary need for all life to involve struggle, physical, intellectual, emotional, to reach our maximum potential? If life becomes too easy, do we lose our edge? Do we only fully mature as individuals when we overcome hardships? face adversity and struggle with our personal, ethical, and moral issues?" Yeah, that was a good one, right? (laughs) The great thing about this question, too, is that it allows me to bring in Felix Adler, the founder of ethical culture. Adler believed in the idea of spiritual pains that the religious impulse and the ethical impulse grew out of particular spiritual pains that we experience, that every person experiences in life. He talked about three spiritual pains, our sense of insignificance in the universe, watching the fate of others who suffer and who die as we move along in the path toward justice, and our need to be relieved, the pain of having a divided conscience, of knowing how we want to be and behave in the world, and being faced also with the reality of how we are and how we behave in the world, and how we reconcile those two parts of our lives together. So those three spiritual pains were, I think, very personal for Adler, but also spoke to how he believed all people, whether in community or individually, struggled through their lives. And his response was that it was religious community that we needed to help us address those spiritual pains. Our sense of insignificance in the universe is addressed when we begin to search together for meaning, when together we create meaning in our lives and in the world at large watching the fate of others who suffer, a pain that is, I think, most particularly known and and sort of made famous by, by Buddha's original, some of you may know the story of the Buddha coming to an awareness. He lived as a young prince who was sheltered from the world and never saw suffering, and over a series of three days on three different carriage rides, he saw suffering around him. He saw people who were ill, people who were poor, and people who were dying, and became aware that there was suffering in the world around him and renounced his kingdom, renounced his family, and set out to become a spiritual disciple, and obviously created a a whole spiritual movement, a religious movement, with his own disciples. So that spiritual pain of seeing others suffer is one that I think religions try to address all the time. Humanistic religions and liberal religious movements find answers often in solidarity, in working together, in caring for each other during times of suffering, and in the shared human experience of suffering, that there is something integral to the human experience of struggle, suffering, and pain. And then that pain of divided conscience that Adler talked about, of seeing how we want to live our lives and being confronted with the reality of how we live our lives. And that too, Adler found a remedy in religious community in that living laboratory I spoke about earlier when we practice how we want to be with each other, we mess up and then we forgive each other and we try again that that answer to the divided conscience that we try and fail and try again over and over all our lives. So Adler found these answers for spiritual pain in religious community in the movement that he founded but it's very clear that he saw those pains as part of the human experience and, and really the genesis of the religious principle. So my short answer to that wonderful question is yes, I think there is something about human experience where we struggle and there is a growth that comes out of that experience as we learn from each other and learn from our own reactions to suffering. I resist, though, the idea that we, at some time, fully mature, that there's some experience or struggle that we're waiting for, at the end of which we'll know we've made it, (laughs) that we're either done or fully complete. I resist that, perhaps partly because I am a young person, and so I haven't had all that much struggle yet. I've had some but I have a lot of life of struggle ahead of me. I worried about that early in my seminary training, how I would be able to respond to people who had had different experiences than my own. And I was so lucky to be in a pastoral care class where I was reminded by another student that we all have different experiences from each other. None of us can know the exact pain another person is experiencing but what we do know is the emotion behind it. We have felt the breadth of human emotion to whatever degree our own life experiences have brought them to us. And so we can have empathy and recognize that same emotion in another, even if it appears in a different way to a different degree, part of a different experience that we haven't had in our own lives. It was a gift to me, and I offer it to you as well, as you care for each other, take care and be in relationship in the way we are called to be in religious community. The next question asks about a perfect world. And it starts, it starts referring To the, the book of Amos, which does my heart good, the prophets of the Hebrew Bible were prophets whose words I fell in love with during my seminary time. The human race, the question says, does not seem to have made great strides since the day of Amos. The perfect world, which Amos calls us to, is probably not possible. But is it even desirable? In The Wrinkle in Time, a wonderful book about, I think, the power of love, such a place seemed so unexciting. Perhaps we always need the opportunity to choose the better path. I think part of the answer here is in the answer to that previous question. And, and perhaps it's the good news that I don't know that we have to worry a great deal about whether the perfect world will be boring or not, because I think it is unlikely to ever exist. I think that's why we talk about it in religious terms, why they were talking about it in the time of Amos and why we talk about it now in our own language, the beloved community, ethical society. Our own name has that aspiration for a perfect world, for a truly ethical society. And I promise you that we do not always live up to it and we will not always live up to it. It's an interesting idea that the perfect world, if it were to exist, might be in the end kind of boring because we wouldn't have the struggle and the choices that we face in our lives. I think my idealism, my ability to believe in some kind of utopia tells me that if it were, and and I will credit my husband and his legal mind, that if something were truly perfect, then of course it wouldn't be boring, because if it were boring, it wouldn't be perfect. (laughs) So maybe that's our answer. In the perfect world, I can imagine we would be in the kind of right relationship and deep, authentic relationship that would make that experience fulfilling. The next question is one that I have gotten frequently in different kinds of ways throughout my year here. It asks how to balance being tolerant of other religious beliefs while true to my own. It asks, is it just, is being tolerant simply a matter of not rejecting another person for his or her beliefs? Is it enough to acknowledge that someone's belief is different from mine and then find a subject that we're both interested in? Or does asking me to respect someone and their belief mean that I have to somehow acknowledge the rightness of their belief? I think this is a great question and one that progressive, liberal, religious folks often struggle with. Our desire to be open to other religious beliefs while having some clarity of thought around what our own beliefs and our own values are can sometimes feel as though it is in discord. And I'm wondering if perhaps respect isn't the wrong word, not that I am suggesting disrespect for other people's religious beliefs. But if the idea of honoring people's beliefs, on honoring the fullness of who they are, while also honoring the fullness of who we are, might not get us a little closer to the answer. Adler talks about each person holding a particular place in the universe. And that what we can do to bring out the best in each person is to honor the uniqueness. To bring out and acknowledge fully who they are. For some people, acknowledging fully who they are may mean acknowledging a belief that is different than our own. And so the trick of how we do that while also honoring our own uniqueness, our own religious beliefs... I think pulls very deeply at that sense of truly believing and respecting that uniqueness in another person. And I think there's a way to honor that in another person and to acknowledge and put out there that you believe differently. And I think there's something to be said for finding safe topics, too for finding ways that you can honor connections between people as well. I'm not sure in the end that I have answered that question. And I think it's one that, that asks us for more exploration and it's one I'll ask all of you to particularly think about perhaps and share your answers during community sharing time. Finally, there was a great question about a higher plane of prophetic vision. The writer says, I understand the implications of living ethically as individuals and as a community, but personally and at West, it often seems that that means specific projects or specific actions, changing a light bulb maybe, working on supportive housing. Is there a higher plane, one of prophetic vision in ethical culture that can task a people or a nation to aspire to the highest principles of integrity and justice? I want to assure you first that I didn't plant this question, although it is the kind that a clergy person hopes for. I think that all the actions we take all the relationships we build, from the littlest conversation in coffee hour to the biggest project you can imagine working for marriage equality across the nation, that every single one is part of our hope to truly honor and see the people in front of us. I've spent this weekend at an anti racism training, and I'll go there this afternoon after platform as well. It's hard work, and it is one of those specific projects, but it's also part of that broader ethical vision. It's part of that same work hearing stories, seeing clearly the people in front of us, building relationships. My vision for Wes, my vision for the liberal religious movement is that we are a force for breaking down barriers. Breaking down barriers that prevent us from seeing the full humanity of every other person and for helping other people to see that humanity too. We talked a little bit about Adler's belief in the unique place of each person in the universe, the space that each one of us takes up that nobody else can inhabit, helping to bring out the best in that person. And that, too, is about seeing and recognizing another's humanity in a deep way, feeling our connection You know, we talk about being a humanistic, religious community and humanism is, of course, a specific movement and can mean many different movements, different ideas. For me, the most important part of humanism is that human part. It's the part that tells us that our hope in the world lies with each other. And so our prophetic vision in the end, I think, is nothing more and nothing less than seeing that humanness, helping other people to see the humanness in us, creating a world where the barriers that we put up to divide us from each other are broken down, and we are able to see connection in every other person a vision of a world and a humanity made whole. I see that we have come and perhaps gone past the time of our end together, but I hope not the time of our questions. The wonderful part of being in a progressive religious community is that you have the opportunity to always ask questions, not just of me, but of each other, and of yourselves. Our whole lives together are a kind of questing, trying answers on for size and seeing if they fit. I feel pretty sure that this community is one that will never run out of questions. And for that, I am truly grateful.